Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm Magic Brian, your host for this growing collection of interviews. Strap yourself in and get ready for a trip back into the history of street performing in the United States at where many consider it all started, San Francisco. Old school performer Lee Ross, someone who has influenced a generation of performers and opened pitches in New York, Boulder, New Orleans, and beyond, sit down with Dana Smith, someone who I had not known about, but I had the pleasure to spend a bit of time with in Colorado right before Lee interviewed him. He's a fascinating guy who, as a performer, has done it all. He shared pitches with the likes of A. Whitney Brown, Bill Irwin, Shields and Yarnell, Robin Williams and Harry Anderson, just to name a few. He talks about the rise and fall of the street scene in San Francisco, the beginnings of English Bay in Vancouver, writing novels, and so much more. This is one of the more valuable episodes to listen to because of the wisdom and knowledge these two legends share. You can certainly learn a lot from the path they have paved, and I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation. Take it away, Lee. Today's date is Friday, June 28th, here in Longmont, Colorado, where we are going to be recording. And this wonderful opportunity with one of the legendary performers <laughs> that I grew up with. Um, I'm going to introduce myself. I'm Lee Ross, and I'm a uh, former New Yorker and um, and uh, old school street performer, as many listeners know, turned screenwriter. And we have stuff to talk about with writing uh, coming up. And today on Stories from the Pitch, we're talking with the incredible, talented Dana Smith, who's in visiting and touring, heading up to Edmonton for the 35th anniversary year. Welcome, Dana Smith. Thanks, Lee. Good to be here, (laughs) Bode. Ready to rock and roll with you, dude. (laughs) (laughs) So those of you who are new to uh, the podcast... um, we're going to be doing a little time travel because Dana goes back to really the great, great uh, auspicious beginnings of the generation that really kicked street theater into the mainstream back in the 70s. So, Dana, I think first we need to just get a historical perspective on, sure. on all this. So take us back to how you got started from the beginning. Sure. So... Um I was a student at Santa Clara University, and I ran into this show called the Royal Lichtenstein Quarter Ring Sidewalk Circus. They were billing themselves as the world's smallest circus from the world's smallest country, performed by the world's smallest minds. And that was all I needed to know. So uh, started with that. And, uh, and it, the, but there was curious things going on on college campuses. There were uh, like these uh, uh, political theater uh, companies would come to our college campus and perform uh, anti-war skits. And then uh, word came out that there was some stuff going on in San Francisco. Individual people performing on this quote-unquote sidewalk. And how old were you at this time? I'm uh, 21 years old. And what year was it? 1972. Before many of our listeners were even born. <laughs> well, anyway, so... Um, I want to just jump a little bit ahead because by 74, I'm traveling around the United States 
And now I'm I'm not just knowing those people, but I'm also known by those people. Were you juggling at this time? Yeah, the circus uh, was a mix of, uh, we did uh, rope walking, fire eating, juggling, magic. We had a bear, a fox, a monkey, a dog, a pheasant, and a miniature horse. I trained the horse, and we were traveling around. We did 37 states, 110 cities, and 32 weeks. We were like, it was like, that was how I learned to do... Uh, sort of a business out of a truck, really. And uh, so I I spent a lot of years on the road before I came back to San Francisco. And I, I think what I would like to talk a little bit about is just that scene. At that point, uh, some things that we that had come and gone already is that Robert Shields had come and gone. Yeah. Uh, he's already done, uh, become Shields and Yarnell and had done the variety show on television. It was CBS. And then um, Ray Jason, of course, had started in 72, just weeks after Robert had started in, in Union Square. Uh, Ray Jason is over on Union Street, a different part of town. Okay, but let's put this in context before the internet, before cable, that there, as you mentioned moments ago, that there were only three channels for America aside from PBS and and who was Robert Shields? <laughs> well Robert was this guy who had studied uh uh mime in France and um you know sort of came back to the United States and was thrashing around uh trying to figure out um some way of taking what he had learned and put it into uh, some sort of performance, and so that that's how uh, Union Square's performances, and they those were uh, um, contained a very uh, what's in, intense, uh, fabled, magical arrests and performances, and you know. Then remember, he was doing the follow mime stuff, and so it was all. You know, everybody wanted to go to Union Square and have Robert Shields mock them. You know, that was the highest honor. And once he became successful, that act was dead. Couldn't do it anymore. Who else was out there at this time? James Taylor, maybe, for music? Well, Chumley was around. Okay, there were only a couple other people even out there in the real street performing world. Harry Anderson was around. These are these are Robert Shields. I mean, uh, Robin Williams was around. Robin Williams. There Bill were. Irwin's there. And, uh, and Larry Pizzoni's there. And so... Paula Poundstone is, you know, writing jokes and trying to figure out how to be funny at the other cafe. Dana Carvey's doing the same thing. Um, the very venerable ventriloquist Ron Lucas blasts into town and steals the stand-up comedy competition uh, from all the stand-ups and goes on to, you know, perform around the world and at the White House. Um, the vortex of the intensity in San Francisco, the variety scene... You know, so you got Robin Williams, who's dabbling in street, but really stand up and then gone. He's in Mork and after that. But he's a man who made, you know, millions, if not a billion dollars plus in the entertainment industry. And you've got Robert Shields. You've got Dana Carvey. you got Harry Anderson. I think Harry Anderson, those guys are all television guys. And they put a lot of money into, you know, uh, Amazing Jonathan, who I don't know was passed through. Uh, Bill Irwin's on Broadway. Um, we had all these people ascending, you know, rocketing right to the top around us. And then 
you know, I get to town in 1980 and I'm looking at trying to crack into the cannery and I've got, you know, in my way, I've got Ray Jason, A. Whitney Brown, Mike Davis, the uh, um, uh, um, the Gizmo guys. It was uh, Fred Anderson and his partner Kit. And uh, there wasn't, uh, you know, there wasn't any flab in these acts. These were, you know, bolted down, hardcore, 30-minute Take no prisoners, variety acts. You know. And did you at this time? Were you a solo act by this time that you got back, or were you still part of an ensemble touring? No, I was. I was solo by January 1980. I'd had a partner who tra- traveled with me in uh, in my in my post circus days, and then um, I, I started soloing, which was much as you know most street acts will agree it's the most efficient way to make a business. And when you came back, was it also with animals or the dog? Or was it just <laughs> at that time when you first arrived? That Because at that time, there was it wasn't just Pier 39. There were several, I can't remember them all, but yeah. there were several venues to play at that time. Yeah, four spaces. Pier 39, which is where Robert the Butterfly Man was really holding court. The Cannery, which is where Whitney and, and Mike Davis and Ray Jason and, and uh, I, Hokum W. Jeebs, Professor Gizmo were also performed there. I, I should, uh, Hokum was a phenomenal act on the street. He didn't, he didn't stay there long because he was just bought into uh, cabarets and he didn't, you know, he never looked back. Uh, there was Ghirardelli Square, a very nice weekend spot. It's, you know, and then there was a, a kind of a windborne place called the Anchorage. So... And then there was the sidewalk. You know, 1980 and 81, I did 2,000 shows on a piece of sidewalk on Jefferson Street. Um, mostly, like, I uh, would crank uh, uh, during the off-season, Friday, Saturday, and Sundays, nine shows a day, nine 15-minute sets with my dog, Sunshine, and my chicken cookie, and my goldfish, and my... Uh, my <laughs> you had goldfish i had a goldfish yeah i said like you know the, the <laughs> it was like you know the right thing i had a little break and i'm stuck in this little street act today but what i don't know maybe i could be in like the killer well show at marine world you know <laughs> and I, I was like now you just watch those goldfish lady because i'd have a vase of 12 of them and i'd bounce them on my head you know and, and i would say if you watch carefully they're going to all swim in formation and get up on their tails and flip us all off <laughs> and there was no uh, at that time people weren't stopping you for having animals or anything in in your act that was uh, uh, and so at what point did you uh, did you begin to make your way into uh, higher up in the or what was happening at well, that so, time so Whitney A. Whitney Brown um, goes from uh, Canry to stand up comedy, and he's doing, you know, this very interesting stand up work. It's a very narrative form of comedy, not really one liners, but storyteller. And then he gets, you know, into Saturday Night Live and and writes for television for uh, n- numerous years. And um, the big picture, I think that was that thing they did on Weekend Update. He they would ask Whitney, and Whitney would do the big picture, and he would have that right, right. Uh, unusual monologue. Mike had gone uh, into... Um, Sugar Babies? Yes, but he got there by way of Broadway Follies, which was a Shields and Yarnell Broadway vehicle that opened and closed in one night. But uh, the theater critic at that show said, gee, there was this really amazing stand-up comic. And so he ended up in in um, uh, Sugar Babies. So 
again, all of these things are going on. And then, which gave a, I just want to convey to all the other people who might be doing street and you want to think about how aspirational things can be. You're, you're watching the people around you who just, just launch these incredibly high quality performances that take them places that open doors and get contracts offered and they're signed, they're inked, the dry deals dried. You know, these guys are, you know, now, you know, in that next level of show business. Now, not all of us, we thought, you know, Robert and, and Ray and myself, um, Nobody offered me any of those kinds of jobs, so this is all theoretical. But we all liked the scene in San Francisco, and we didn't want to work anywhere else. We didn't want to take a contract in Las Vegas. That would have been a step down. That Instead of doing three 45-minute sets on the street for whatever we would take in, that would be sitting in a green room, listening to a producer, being out on stage and directed and told what we could and couldn't do. And, and none of us wanted that. We really, uh, we, and we turned down a lot of private party work. We just didn't need it. We were too busy. Yeah. And we should let everybody who's listening to this know that this is at an age and a time where uh, shows that were based around height and getting up to higher levels for more numbers in your crowd was not a thing. Also, this was a period before really everybody had a sound system. Yep. This was back when all the venues uh, and pitches in the Bay Area were were with seating and in an enclosed uh, private company space. So you had a stage, an actual stage that was built into the 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 space, uh, these walkways, and people would sit down and wait for your show to start. Yeah, very different uh, back then. Yeah, yeah. That, that was um, um, word was out that this was a place to see shows, and not only was it a place to see shows, but we, you know, it wasn't a nobody made a big deal of it, but. Most people understood that Robert Shields had started on the street, that uh, you could see this guy, the bowling ball juggling guy named Ray Jason, who was the official 49er juggler. You could see him in, at the cannery or Ghirardelli Square. And that, that, that pulled people. And, and, and it, there's no, uh, you know, Robert uh, Nelson, the butterfly man, um, once he, he worked Fridays and Saturdays at the pier almost for like three or four years and nobody else worked there with during this period of time. Eventually we all started working all through the schedule. But in that time, Robert built up this huge Hispanic and a multi-ethnic crowd of sort of, uh, sort of desperate, desperado kind of half tough, but uh, soft hearted dudes who would come to their shows and, and, and uh, bring their chicks and, uh, and it was a thrill to have Robert insult you. And this this was uh, spawned a really, I mean, I, I think if you look around, uh, I think, as a matter of fact, uh, Stories from the Pitch just uh, published a photograph of Robert holding court with a really big crowd, which was just kind of like an like a average day in the, at the office, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, for those of you who are are relatively new in the street theater world, 
the butterfly man, Robert Nelson, influenced several generations, along with Dana and Ray Jason and a whole bunch of performers from this period, influenced many, many other performers from Master Lee to, um, you know, the, the early days of the, of the busking circuit as well, where Ray Jason was there the very first year or so of Halifax, and uh, Dana here was and is returning to the very first year in Edmonton. So these were very influential years in the world of street performing, uh, where there were some big cash prizes, too, back then, um, which lured uh, people out from wherever they were living. So uh, a couple of things that, that in the... 1980s, the most of what we had was acts that had prototyped their own performances. There was very little copycatting going on yet. Right. There was in San Francisco a lot of experimentation was was coming and going pretty quickly, and the, certain kinds of things worked better than other kinds of things. If you think of street as primarily a visual form you have a kinetic thing it doesn't matter you can do it pantomimically you can do it juggling uh but it, you, there's a visual aspect and so uh, those uh that was one piece of the puzzle so you know uh, certainly like uh, the guys who could really juggle well uh, uh gary calder was a great juggler uh, frank olivier was a great is a great juggler and um, their ability to put in front of an audience appealing visuals uh, uh, made them uh, short-lived acts in the, in the wharf, really. Right. But, you know, we were all very busy in the 80s. And the, um, you know, I was training uh, at, a, at a rehearsal studio five days a week. All year and, long. And at this time, what was your show primarily consisting of at that time? Um, so I was closing with uh, my dog, Sunshine, at that time. And I put in how much is that doggy in the window with her at that time. I had the chicken on the head routine where I juggled fire with a live chicken on my head. Just a couple of old clucks looking for a couple of young chicks. That's all that's going on here, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, folks, you have to understand, Dana is multi-talented. He not only can play music, but he is a master uh, handstand, uh, uh, an acrobat. Um, so he was doing stuff that today would even is considered in, uh, uh, incredibly strong, uh, but not 20 feet up in the air. But, right. Uh, or the idea of having an actual live chicken on your head that you're juggling and doing whatever rollabola. Yeah. So I, I was doing rollabola handstand in 82 and I started to work on the, uh, um, I had stacked blocks and I would throw the blocks off the, uh, one at a time and walk down the blocks. And I ran that act, uh, that was a difficult act to do. It took, it took a lot of training, but I, Performed the trick until about 2004. Wow. So I was, uh, by then I was 53, I guess, something like that. And that's where many of the generation today, all the checkerboards and all of uh, the uh, the guys from uh, 
um, Jean-Michel and uh, Mikiel and all yep. the Dutchmen and all of us hitting our 50s. And it's amazing that you were there doing all this uh, a long time ago. So for those who don't know, um, Dana is, uh, you know, getting on in that retirement zone. So it's incredible <laughs> that he's, he's here and still making it happen. It's incredible. So the... Uh, one thing that was nice about the wharf is the stages uh, were conducive to that hand balancing act because I was always on a flat surface that I knew. I knew how slick or sticky it was. And um, uh, when I started going out on the road with that act and, you know, playing weird places with, you know, no stage or some stage or linoleum or concrete or grass or whatever the situation was, it, it, that became a problem. And it also became a problem because of all the things I had in my act. That was about an hour a day of training, no matter what, mm. no matter what else was going on. And that that uh, um, you know, there's some stunts that we do, right? We get it, we do it, and we don't have to work on it anymore. But that was not one of that. That was required constant keep upkeep. Uh, uh, a lot of things, I, you know, you had to watch not pull a muscle uh, or tweak a wrist and. Um, um, it was also there was a lot of things about it. I liked doing it. I was trying constantly to do, you know, uh, uh, juggling is kind of a, 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 a dominates street. It's a very dominant uh, skill set. Mm -hmm. So I was always adding the dog. I was adding the ukulele. I was adding the hand balancing. I was busting my ass to try to figure out how to give my audience something that they had might not see elsewhere. Also, it, it just, uh, I was trying to get booked, you know, later on. It was like, I needed to be able to distinguish myself as here's something that, you know, you can get that you can't get else, did elsewhere. Did you play comedy clubs at that time? 80s were very good into yeah. the 90s. Yeah, I did some. And, I, you know, I was there uh, um, at the other cafe and Holy City Zoo. And there was, you know, um, 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 uh, Paula Poundstone, uh, Barry Sobel. Um, uh, I saw Dana Carvey, um, uh, Kevin Meany. Uh, I'm trying to think of all the names. Uh, there, a bunch of it was it was that was all right, but um, it was better on the street. We we're kings, you know. We were uh, serious people. We were all living in our own apartments. We were all paying our own bills. We were all making plenty of dough, and we were making, you know, uh, a good life for ourselves. You know, so it was. And were you married? Or did you have children? What was the story behind the scenes? And if you don't mind, sure, no, no problem. So. Because a lot of these guys, they do have kids. These are there are many uh, performers now work with their family. There was back then there was Steve Mills uh, with his family. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, got married in 1992, and um, I was married till 1999. To uh, and and I had um, my daughter Alana in 1992. And uh, th that was out of a relationship that had started many, many years before. And um, uh, there was in that, that was a big jump because I was 40 years old when I jumped into that. And uh, I didn't know how that would look. And how that did look was that we ended up in Arizona. I ended up working on the road to try to make it, you know, the, the, the uh, make the money to make the family work. It was the time I worked at Universal Studios in that era. I worked at County Fairs in that area, 
I worked at the Renaissance Fair in Arizona, which was a little uncomfortable for me because I've not really adapted to that kind of uh, uh, performing scene. Right. So, um, and it was hard. You know, I got up to Oregon and I was uh, fumbling and stumbling along and we were going broke. And uh, it was, you know, the joy of having this kid and then this, the uh, economics of never being with the kid because I'm always out trying to scuff up enough money to uh, keep it going. Mm. Um, uh, th- there were a lot of pressures. Th- the main thing is that we got all the uh, the uh, divorce happened. The uh, property that we had purchased was kept, and th- we made all the payments, and the child support payments were made, and the kid's gone to college, and she's got a job, and she loves her dad, and she loves her mom, and the mother and father get along really well. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I, ch- I want to jump back and, and, and mention that, that in 1980, man, I thought I was the hottest thing that, that ever happened. The only people that swung bigger egos than me were Robert and, and Ray Jason. And as far as I was concerned, they were half as good as I was. But nevertheless, I did the best I could to put up with these guys with their their uh, their swagger. But I'm in in uh, Moscow, Idaho, and I think I am the hottest thing since you know sliced bread. And there's this dude who I'd seen doing, you know, he's standing with white face with a fiddle and he's fiddling when people and freezing stop. And I see him in Fisherman's Wharf and like three months later, I'm walking down after a beer in a pub on a Friday night. And I spot him standing there in this little breezeway with a whole group of bluegrass players. And I know it's him. He's just one face. And this is Hillbilly Willie or Crow. Uh, played with a band of buzzards who was uh, artist of spoon man's uh, side man. And uh, so I'm like, wow, this dude, what's his name? His name is Crow. He's, he's got a cool name, man. I mean, if, <laughs> if envy was a priced man, I was now a wealthy man. But I was like, holy man, he's got a whole troop of people. And I'm, you know, by myself driving around out there. <laughs> So uh, some people will know Hillbilly, but he hasn't done shows in a while. But he, he like myself, was part of a group of people that drifted up and down from British Columbia down to Arizona. Um, uh, and once I figured out that, you know, I went out to Boston in 77. I was in Key West in 78, 79. But the scene for me was on the West Coast. I, I, and also in the intermountain west uh the, while the spaces are distances are long there was a, a place i wanted to be more than than uh you know drifting around in, in the midwest uh where dates you know you're on flat so it's not as hard on your equipment and you can get to you know do spot dates is is easier but not as um didn't have the romance i was looking for anyway crow <laughs> <laughs> years later we're doing this date in Yuma and we're like going to bed in the back of this parking lot in front of this shopping center where we're going to be doing shows in historic old town Yuma which is kind of an oxymoron <laughs> and he goes you know Dana not a lot of us got the guts to get out here on the bleak tour <laughs> oh god this is you're throwing out names that all these kids will just be like, you know, artist the spoon man was uh-huh. 
incredible back then. So one of the things that happened to me, and, and if if you've gone out to the West Coast and tried to work in San Francisco, there's a lot of wind, a lot of fog, a lot of cold air, and it's coming in off the Pacific Ocean, and and it's great. When you're trying to do a 110-degree fair in New Jersey in August, and you're thinking, wow, it'd be nice to be in 65-degree weather juggling, but it's still a lot of wind, and the off-seasons are are pretty long. So I I quickly figured that somewhere in Arizona was was some work that I would be better served if I could figure out how to make that my oyster, you know? What was, at that time, on the road and in general, for, you know, what, what was considered a good hat? Because we know about who the record breakers are and everybody's ego is involved in how great your last hat was and how big a crowd I had. But this was a time period where it was a completely different economy. It was, a, a, a you know... Uh, we're going so far back. So a big hat then was equal to, in some ways, the biggest hats that happen today um, that you hear about. So I'm curious, you know, with... Uh, so, okay, so we... Uh, not necessarily for yeah, you, no, but just the general... Yeah, yeah I, would say, I would say, you know, everybody uh, that... When we would go out and, and uh, you know, like I went to Lake Havasu and I got under the, uh, the, the London Bridge in frickin' Lake Havasu, and um, I did shows there for a couple of weeks, and um, I would go out, and I got what I would call background radiation money, or, you know, pity money, or mm-hmm. near, you know, it's like, maybe you could scuff up 25, 30 bucks a show. All right, there you go, folks. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, I was I was camped out in BLM land, and I needed to keep my chops together, keep my, my act in up, and I didn't have any paid dates. So I'd sit there and, and do that. And, and occasionally you could luck into something where it's, you break out, you actually get a viable show, and, and it feels, you know, right. But um, there, was a, there was no, in Arizona, there was no... You know, when I got to Phoenix in 92, we're talking a million people. There's three, four million people there now. Right. So it's a much larger uh, economy there now. I'm not even sure it's still any more adapted to street than it was in 1992. But we began trying to educate them. A guy named Sean Eric, who lives in Phoenix, and a, a real fine magician and juggler, Craig Davis, who is a Mormon and uh, uh, always wanted to be an entertainer. He's a very uh, talented five-club juggler and and builds his own effects. And he's got a great big studio that he builds his own uh, illusions in. Mm-hmm. Those guys were my main hang. And, of course, Crow, Hillbilly Willie, who was living in his bus down in the desert in Tucson, and it was like, really, it's like a scene out of a Dennis Hopper movie, you know? It's like the wind's blowing, you know, and his old 56 Chevy truck is sitting there, and his, you know, half, tires are half, you know, flat, and, you know, this guy comes out of uh, the back of his truck after playing his upright piano, and, you know, dog runs off after a rattlesnake, and it's like, you know, Crow, you know, it's like, you know, offering you a bowl of tea and brown rice to eat, you know. <laughs> and were you going up to Canada at this time? Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. You'd come up and do, what were the festivals you were primarily doing at that time up in Canada or otherwhere, other places? Well, I did the same thing everybody did. I was in Halifax. I was in uh, Windsor. Um, I did the, the first uh, time they ever tried to do a street 
festival in Toronto. I was, uh, out, you know, there with Pavarotti and John Feely wow. and uh, Dan Looker was yeah. there and and uh, a very young, uh, precocious, twenty-two-year-old uh, checkerboard guy was there. Um, the the little lightning uh, source of high energy. Uh, uh, there were some acts that that wanted to come, but they were too hardcore. Oh, I know who showed up was Cyrus. Cyrus shows up with Benji to to work at that one, and Boy. they were. <laughs> Yeah, Cyrus, uh, the happiest man in show business, yeah. the least cynical man in show business. Um, certainly one of the uh, inspirations to a certain kind of. Uh... And had you at this time period? It was this when the writing. When did writing? For those of you who don't know, um, uh, Dana is also an incredible novelist and has produced four novels, I believe, and probably some other. Plays and short stories. I'm not sure, but uh, but was the writing happening at this time while you were in the 90s, or when did it really take full form for you as another outlet? Yeah. Because we all strive as performers to not get hooked into that singular thing of I'm working only on the jokes and my act, and uh, we're all looking for that other outlet, that other place. Mm-hmm. So maybe that when tell us. Well. So in 1980, I put the first draft of my first novel uh, together uh, on a manual typewriter over about five, six months. Um, I would write in the mornings and then go do street shows in the afternoons. And and a lot of uh, busking. uh, There's Fred Anderson um, and myself and uh, uh, um, Stoney Burke is a guy that, uh, and uh, I got to see Jonathan Rickman in The Modern Lovers. Uh, uh, they also played what well, Berkeley at University of California Berkeley. We all would do shows near Sather Gate. Yeah, and um, yeah. I could go about once a week. I'd burn out the crowd if I was there more than that. Uh, I'd go over to San Francisco State. I'd go down on Market Street, and I was just doing shows. And I'd just get you know done writing and I'd go try a show. And um, that first, I didn't have time. I, after I wrote the first draft of the novel, I realized I was going to... And you have to remember, I was writing I'm on a piece of paper. There were no computers. There were no word processors. Yeah, this is- so it was very tedious to revise. Um, so that stayed in the can, and I, I finally finished it, edited it, and I never released it because, it was like a lot of first novels, it was yeah. full of uh, worms and holes and, and errors. But in the 80s, there were a number. So the, Bill Irwin goes to Broadway with The Regard of Flight. Yes, yes. Um, there were other shows. Uh, Jeff Hoyle, who was also a pickle family circus clown, is doing incredible one-man theater. And um, I tried uh, – Bob Berkey yeah. came to town. Avner came to town. Um, we All of a sudden, we're seeing large – 90-minute shows, not necessarily narrative. They weren't necessarily built that way, but they were a, 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 a bigger box to play in than a, the tight 30-minute street show. So I was writing about that and trying to write something that would work, but I never developed anything that I thought was worth trying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those folks who know who Bill Ir- Bill Irwin's been in movies now, and uh, uh, he's worked with Robin Williams when he was alive, uh, mm-hmm. and is a very respected actor. Um, 
and uh, some of these other guys that the kids out there don't know, uh, Bob Berkey, uh, you know. That was also at a time when uh, the Edinburgh Fringe was really coming up yeah. and becoming big. And so you had people like uh, No Cure for Cancer with, uh, uh, what's his name? And um, So so when did, uh, when did you feel good about uh, getting further into the writing? At what, what stage was, were you performing and writing again, or how did it work? Well, it, so I remarried uh, in 2007. And um, my second performing dog still had some years left in her. We did 5,000 shows together between 2000 and 2010, wow. about 500 shows a year. Um, I played, uh, we were at the Ohio State Fair for four years. We were at the Oregon State Fair for four years. Uh, I was the MC and stage manager of the biggest free stage at those fairs. Wow. And um, I ran those, you know, I had Robert Earl Keen, uh um, so you were ending up kind of producing almost. Well, I, what happened is that they didn't have any showbiz people who had some chops and background and in, in just, you know, out there slugging it out. And they they brought in these really kind of non-show business people to try to run the stages. And they were like bugging everybody. And, and I, a guy knew my work and said, you know, I think Dana would be cool at this. And let's just give him a shot. Right. So... Um, uh, that was a good work, and, and Lacey and I did all of that, and I started to see Lacey was going to be coming to uh, to a close, and I was worried about, you know, I don't know, all of us make a promise to ourselves to do something with our our lives, something that we want to do. I always wanted to be first, last, and in between a street act. That was my first love, and it's it's been what I've done the most with my life, but I did want to do long narrative. And so my wife recognized that and said, you know, um, you know, we don't need the money. If you want to write a book, write a book, you know, that's supportive. That's really great. So, um, and those, each of the four novels takes about two and a half years, start to finish. Um, and that's, it's a, it's a lot of work. Each book's about a hundred thousand words, more or less. And some are a little shorter, um, so they take about 10 hours to read. It's like a novel. It's, it's a lot of work to, to, yeah, yeah. to write or read. And um, the best of them, uh, Hot Spring Honeymoon, is a sexual farce about a guy who gets, you know, um, uh, blown up at his hot spring and they can't find anything wrong with him. And uh, he seems to ha- have discovered there's this chick in town that he's got the hots for. And it uh, turns out to be the chick he's got the hots for is his ex-wife who he has no recollection of and he begins to chase her around town and his uh, best friend is a turquoise miner who's got six girlfriends and he can't make up his mind about which one to be with and then there's has the bambolina the the, the the little burrow that takes care of the turquoise miner and follows him around and can can folks listening can they get this on their Kindle or on their, yeah, their sure. iPad it's at Amazon we, it's you can get an Amazon either way ebook or, or printed however you want it that's great. And the title again is, is Hot Spring Honeymoon. Hot Spring Honeymoon. <laughs> That's just one of uh, uh, of Dana's uh, wonderful novels. Um, so, so what have you seen as the biggest changes as, over these many, many years now uh, with the Internet coming up and all these different changes that you've weathered? Um, because, uh, you know, my generation, yeah, we've weathered some storms too, but... Uh, 
you know, what do you what do you see these days as, as some of the big issues uh, or or problems or things that you've encountered? Well, for sure, the, uh, the you know um, I was in uh, Boston in '77 and I got to see at close hand how supportive and totally over out of their minds the audiences were for street theater in Boston. Harvard Square. Um, I was working in the Common during the day because the square was so crowded I couldn't scuff up enough money. So I would do some stuff out in the Common at lunchtime. And then that summer's when Faneuil Hall actually opened. Summer of '77, they did their, but they were just paid gigs in that at the end of the summer. But things started to unfold there. San Francisco. It's hard to say. Um, uh, we could tie some of the peak to some of the talent. Yeah. Certainly, if you if you, when you remove a, a, a an act like Mike Davis from the mix, you're the, the the that could be for some people in some people's imagination, that's it. It's over. Yeah, you know. But I don't think so. I, I think that we had a really nice rise through the '80s, and then tourism patterns changed. The the venues, uh, not at Pier Thirty Nine, but at the other end of the wharf, started to get softer and softer. Until you couldn't really even do an effective show, even on the weekends at the Cannery. And Ghirardelli was still holding so on. Places were drying up; they were closing down. Yeah, yeah. And Anchorage was all had always been a tough nut. So if you have four stages and if you just get one slot, you get three shows, right? So if I could get one show, uh, uh, one slot at East Place, and that means I've got twelve shows, mm. right? And figure. Uh, we could make our nut if we could get about 12 shows. But if you're, you're down to like three shows, four shows a week, and then you have to go out and start, you know, looking for other shows that to, to do. Um, and then the, the, the pier moved the stage to the back into out of a protected area where we, we could really didn't have any wind problems to a place we had nothing but wind problems. It was a very different uh, support system. And, you know, I was pretty much gone as many... Uh, Ray left, um, took his boat, and went to uh, Key West. Yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, you know, Robert was gone by then. Um, uh, it, it was just a, it's a very, very different evolution. But that didn't mean we were, were not performing. I ended up finding some really great spots in Phoenix to do street. That's amazing. And um, it was in Tempe, and it, it wasn't during... Like a Friday or Saturday, but uh, at these a uh, couple of craft fairs that would have me, and um, they uh, and there was another guy over on the other side of town that these people started to really believe in this kind of family entertainment, and they really liked what we did. I had to walk them through some of the the, the there was some resistance to our having the crowd, but once we walked them through that and showed them, we took photographs and we explained what we were doing. We, we said, look, you, you know, th there's 200 people in this photograph, Yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. and here's 200 people more. Here's 200 people more. At the end of a day, if you have three acts and you can show them that there's over 3000 people have seen or been part of those shows. And then you show them the pictures of the bands that are playing. You say, wait, well, I paid $15,000 for that band. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And how much did you, you know, so we developed a, 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 a lot of support slowly and uh, by 
you know, teaching. Uh, and then once we had a couple of key festival producers in the Valley in our corner, they had credibility to say, you know, you guys at the Ostrich Festival would be wise to, to, to give this a, a, a try. It works, you know, it's good stuff. Yeah, well, I think you're talking to even a larger issue, which is that every few years, few years, there's some new hire at these developments, whether it's South Street Seaport or yeah. wherever, and they are coming from a corporate or a college background, and they don't understand there's an ecosystem here. They don't under, we, and especially after the internet, you know, the whole, um, you know, we're all looking at our phones now, and we've lost sight of the human element almost, and what. We're magicians at street performers bring back the human interactive element that we've lost. And, and there are less venues and locations to because these corporations and entities don't even want someone out there doing something uh, alive. And it's not just piped in music and flat screens at the at the bar or, or in in city walk. It's. It's we're losing touch with one another, yeah. and how do we, yeah. per, you know, you help and, educate people. And, and so, the Boston Common and Harvard Square were public spaces. They were not corporately owned retail environments. English Bay, where I worked with Bill Ferguson, and I worked with uh, Alex Elixir and Nick Nicholas and Andrew Elliott and myself, and the incomparable, unstoppable. Force of nature, Drew Franklin, give me a freaking break. <laughs> and English Bay was, where is English Bay? In Vancouver, BC. There so 89, 90, 91, we're uh, um, exploring the size of this resource. We don't know how big it is or how good it is. And um, Bill is concerned that there's too many of us in town and the resource isn't there. And uh, and so there was some skepticism by some, but uh, Andrew Elliott, uh, the uh, effervescent, uh, uh, the, as uh, uh, Ula Taylor describes him, as the whiskified philosopher. <laughs> well, once once he was. I think his his whiskification is over, and it's mostly <laughs> philosophy now. <laughs> yes, you can wax poetic uh, with Andrew. Um, who still works, oddly enough. Yeah. He's so still out there. We were, uh, but they were very exciting because that's on public property, not corporate space. And so there right. was an electric uh, uh, quality to our meetups. And I, I know Angus McDonald was, was, was key to that. Charlie Brown was very infrequently around. He was mostly over in Victoria. Yeah, Victoria was like the secret spot that uh, kind of had a, a busking festival that John Park played a few times. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but it was tough to get over there, even though it was a great uh, fest, and Charlie Brown had it sewn up. Um, and back then, uh, in Vancouver, it, it was a corporate entity, I think, behind... Uh, um, the triangular. Well, there's uh, Granville Island. Granville Island. Yeah. Sorry. So that was a shopping center, yeah. and that had a schedule. That was the, that's an advantage. You don't have to go sit on a pitch and fight, uh, you know, among yourselves to de- decide. Your yeah, to wait yeah. your turn. So that that makes uh, made for efficiency. But th- that was a well, it's like any space. It's it's fragile. 
a few years ago, five years ago, I was in uh, Sydney, Australia, hanging with Dom Ferry and, and Andrew, and we were hanging out, drinking some beers and uh, talking about the old days there. And we were talking, and it, I think it's true, the, the, we, you're just moving around. You're never going to find a pitch that's just going to remain the same. They're going to be moving, and you have to move with them. Um, and I'm, I, at this point, and looking back, I, ha, I must say I'm, I have a, I'm envious and admire the, the Renaissance Festival scene. Has uh, Some of these guys have had uh, uh, Johnny Fox... Jeff Cobb, they were able to sit on um, um, on some of these uh, venues and play for decades, you know, consistently with the producers supportive of their refining and polishing and perfecting these just, you know, Swiss clock of an act kind of things that in uh, the stability of the institution and the support for their artists creates uh, a very... Um, um, uh, it's 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 nurturing. Uh, I think street has not been quite like that. If you look at yeah. at the texture of street in its rawest form, it, uh, there, um, the the poetry, the the romance, the charm, which you're, you know, if you go back to Shields in '72, there there was laughter and a lot of stuff. But there was a ton of charm. There was a truckload of charm. It was just utterly heartbreaking. And uh, so beautifully, uh, the way he put this thing together. Eh, you know, with a little bit more hard-boiled egg kind of uh, operators now that uh, really, you know, they got a business to run, yeah, you know? And there's, yeah, I mean, over the years, a formula has emerged. Yeah. And that formula is a mathematical and financial equation that has to do with height, sound, and location, and... Mm -hmm few other you know some folks now i think that the modern renaissance fair for those who can make it is the cruise ship industry and those folks like nick and david diebel and a few other folks yeah it, it it's too bad that they're still you know ben and jerry's that was for a while back when with tash and sure. you know ben and jerry's had the tour and if you get on the tour back then it was did you do one i never did that tour. Okay, yeah. i i i was with tash and henrik yeah those were Great times. I and that was a big company, yeah, and um, and a big corporate entity that was forward thinking. And we've missed that since then. There hasn't really been another big corporation uh, that went, "Hey, street performing. We're going to figure out how." And it's never been a big reality show. No one's ever figured out the amazing race. Of street performing. It hasn't gotten into the zeitgeist and exposed, you know, because every street performer is like, oh, they can't know how much money we make. Or they can't know about where I live or what I do or that this house is paid for. <laughs> God forbid. It's all been in cash. So uh, so for whatever reason, it's never no producer or, or in, in Hollywood ever went, oh, we, we figured it out. Even though circus arts has done very well in uh, with uh, pink and music, with music, or right. Tim Burton has used circus in three different movies of his. Right, um, Dumbo being the most recent. Mm -hmm. um, 
So that it's interesting that we haven't quite broken through uh, on that other level, even though folks like uh, Nick Broad have brought us the busking app. And, our, and as we're going towards digital currency, that's the other interesting thing to me, is we are migrating slowly as the world keeps changing towards other issues where we, you know, you have to have a swipe or a Venmo or you're announcing in your hat line that you can go to my my dip dip jar or whatever it is that uh, technically helps get you a few extra bucks. Yeah, I mean, in I had a very I had a, a garden floor apartment in San Francisco in one of the most desirable neighborhoods, uh, the Cow Hollow. Uh, it was a one bedroom. Um, I was in the, one of the most uh, uh, coveted nightlife districts. From 1980 through 1984, my rent was somewhere between $400 to $450 a month, which was uh, unbeatably easy to, to uh, you know, I could scuff that up pretty fast. Uh, it, it wasn't like I could go out on a Tuesday in February and get 450 bucks out of a crowd. But... Uh, not improbable that that kind of uh, uh, um, amount of currency could be made in in a good summer day. So just the rent uh, control and uh, to be in the, the certain areas of the bay or wherever back when before <clears throat> it became silicon tech craziness. Yeah. yeah, well, it's it's all over. But that that it, that you know we were um, before I got there when I first arrived in San Francisco and for. Uh, a good chunk of time I was living in my truck. I'd been living in my truck for about six years at that point. And um, um, it was sort of like I was talking to Ray Jason and some of the other guys. And I was like, no, we can, we probably, we have, a, it's pretty steady here. We can actually do this. And, you know, we can, you know, if we could talk a, a landlord into, you know, renting to us, uh, we, we're, we're, we're actually pretty stable. You know, we're one of the more profitable uh, uh, types of employment in San Francisco. You know, I mean, we got hassled by cops and I, I, it was a cop that used to come at me all the time. He hated me for no reason. And I knew one of the reasons had to be that I was probably making two or three times what he was making, uh, you know, on a day next to this guy. And he's this like, you know. This Dana guy with the dog and all the chicks that he's hanging out with, I'm pissing me off, man. I'm gonna... <laughs> that's, that's, that is true. The world over, there's always that that cop who just is after you <laughs> for whatever, you know. They, there were others that looked after us, too, you know. There's more than a few... Uh, uh, times where I had trouble that, that that they backed me up and kept me from uh, harm. Yeah, you bring up a good point there, though. That over the years, in in, in the eighties, in the nineties, mm -hmm. even today, you know, we do enough gigs and you get your cash that it still is to this day a little bit difficult on the tax thing, how to make sure you have enough gigs that on paper, all oh, the government I made this much, but they don't know completely about, you know, the, all the cash and all this stuff. Um, so, uh, it was so Waldo shows up at my house <laughs> <laughs> and he's got two suitcases, nothing else. And he's been gone for like four years. He's been in Australia or Switzerland. Yeah, okay. He shows up at my house and he's looking at me, and we're having a beer, and we're looking at him. He goes, yeah, I'm a little worried about being back in the States. 
you know, man, I haven't uh, filed my taxes in the last four years. And I'm going, Waldo, you got two suitcases. You got one with some clothes in it. And you got another with like your juggling equipment. I'm not sure that you're making enough to pay taxes, dude. Right. For those who don't know, uh, the Waldo Woodhead show is one of the great comedy juggling acts. They've been, uh, you know, they... They were there at the very big beginnings of, of Halifax. They did most of it. They ended up on television. Waldo was uh, ha- having um, they had a unique act. It was difficult in, in in some ways to keep it booked enough to keep everybody's uh, you know wallets fat. And so um, Wally started working both in Perth and over in uh, in Switzerland. Uh, because it was just, uh, he didn't have to go out and figure out how to get bookings. And, and that was a, a really uh, a, a big deal. And well, let's talk for a second about this, uh, because we're still good on a few more minutes yeah, of yeah. time. Is, is the, it, as we all know, it's show biz. And a lot of people, especially pre-internet, you know, you had to become a businessman, and many of us have had to focus on marketing and negotiating, and you didn't have an agent or a manager or anybody to book you at the club. It was just you. So, you know, those were early days when you had to put together your own little posters and, and, and show up at the college gig and do it yourself. Yeah, yeah, we did. We made our own posters. Um, you would call... Uh, uh, and a student union and the student union would have an activities director and the activities director would book the juggling performers in to do nooners. Uh, th- that was a very uh, uh, one way to, 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 to do business. Then uh, uh, this miracle occurred and uh, this thing called videotape came out and we had cassette oh tapes. Oh my God, video? What? <laughs> so now all of a sudden it was like, oh, you had to have a videotape made. <laughs> you guys, you don't understand. There was a time where there was not even video. It was just some pictures. That was it. And, but nobody nobody knew what to do with these videotapes because, you know, people would like uh, go into a studio and shoot their act with no audience in front of them and it'd be like, well, it's kind of hard to tell how well that's going to go over. You know, the, uh, it's odd that you mentioned the video. I, I mean, and then there was the period where it was like, what's a website? Yeah, right. Yeah. What's, a, who has, who has time? Who did websites back then? You know, there were, you know, thank God Jim, like, yeah. showed us the way with. Uh, so Finkel, Dick Finkel in, in Edmonton, Finkel had it figured out pretty quick that. He was going to have to convince a production uh, when he developed his festival that he was going to have to have a budget for him to get on an airplane and go to where we were. Right. He couldn't tell anything from these videotapes we were sending to, to, out to these places. And, and, and Dick was um, um, what I think anybody that's in our business would hope and dream to find, which is a person with patience a willingness to sit down and watch a few shows, having the smarts to say, well, gee, it's Tuesday, it's a little windy, it's a little hot, maybe I should come back and see it tomorrow, maybe a bigger crowd, it's kind of, I can feel it too, it's an off, no, it's a good day, oh my God, you know, but he's able to make an assessment about, you know, where your strengths and weaknesses were, and we all have them. We're all good in some situations and not good in others. We might be, uh, it, 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 he was a very astute evaluator of talent. 
and uh, appreciative of the strolling act as much as the circle show guy. Right, he got it. He really got it. Yeah. You know, he understood it's an ecosystem. We're all good and we do different things and yeah. they're all valuable. There's no, I'm the big thing. You know, a strolling act can touch a heart and get so much or a musician or, you know, and, 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 you know, and he, he understood that. Well, so that was uh, not just the, the, the Shelley uh, Switzer took over for Dick, and like Dick, the two of them have had the same aptitude to do something. And as a gentleman by the name of uh, Steve Remington, who I worked for in Eugene, Oregon, uh, again, Steve is the same way. Uh, these are people who can look into uh, an environment that they're going to produce into and they can they can see your act or my act or uh, any show that that's got something that's 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 serendipitous and street oriented and they can imagine how to place it into their festival and they can really surround you with the very very uh, most supportive elements so that you can be at your best and you can uh, um, uh, thrive, and it, it's uh, it, it's it's like bizarre that that I was halfway through with well, halfway my through my I was about fifteen years into my work before I met anyone that had any of this kind of magical power. Right. You know. Right. right. Well, uh, why is it? Do you think that Canada and busking festivals and fringe festivals have have proliferated and been uh, championed and there's a circuit that you can go to in Canada and other parts of the world and yet America and the U.S. is, you know, you've got Lawrence, Kansas, you've, you, you had Denver right. uh, years ago, uh, but it's amazing, we don't have busking festivals of any real, you know, consistency in, in the U.S. So why do you think that is? You know, I think that to make sense of this, um, one of the ways I can tell this story is I was going through a very difficult period of time. I'm down in Arizona, and uh, I mean, I don't. It's not an option. I don't. I can't get up and not perform. I am going to have to go. So I would look in the newspaper. And it was like, okay, they're having an event in Prescott. I'm going to go up to Prescott, and I'm going to perform until they tell me I can't perform. And um, and I went there, and I was told I couldn't perform, but that was only after I drew the biggest freaking crowd the universe had ever seen. It was like the sheriff showed up, and uh, it was like a he comes over with the festival director and says, "You cannot be here. I just collected some money, and I was, I you know, I didn't think I was going to get arrested. I thought I was going to get shut down, but I wanted. The, it was great. The the, the uh, sheriff says, "Listen, okay, I got it. I got it. Uh, the festival director, just just go away." So he's not looking at me in the eye. He's sort of looking off in the distance. And he goes. Well, they really drew a big, messy, complicated crowd, didn't you, buddy? You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, my uh, happened to be that my wife and kids were at your show and said it was pretty good. So, um, I don't think I can legally arrest you. I don't think I can even legally stop you. But, um, 
that's just, I'm just telling you what I'm going to do. I'm not going to tell the festival director any of this. And so if you try another show, I hope, uh, I hope you understand that uh, could be pretty good. <laughs> the sheriff. That's great. Prescott, Arizona. For those of you who don't know, Prescott is this tiny little town in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, with yeah. a so, little college. So I um, I got worked for ten years at Schnapp Farms, the entertainment farm in Queen Creek, Arizona, which is of course neither has the Queens or Creeks. Um but <laughs> so how does that answer the question, though, of like, why hasn't, you know, why don't we have a busking circuit here? Um, um, I just don't, I don't know. So here's one, one of the ways that, so like, I, I did not want to, um, uh, con- I was not happy in Fisherman's Wharf. So, um, and I, I urge everybody to do this. I went out to Yuma, uh, or actually Yuma came to me. They, there was a festival conference in Phoenix, and I was working at the Glitter and Glow Festival with Waldo and Butterfly Man and myself. We were doing this big amphitheater show, street show, but they gave us lights and sound. It was a very nice situation. And uh, so anyway, this guy, Vern Beat, and uh, got in touch with a bunch of directors of festivals and said, you got to figure out how to put this into your, your shows. And um, I got in contact with Yuma, and that gave me five weekends of shows in the winter. In about 12 weeks, five of my weekends were figured out, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. They would give me a stipend, plus I could pass the hat. And now I'm, I'm working in Yuma in a place that had seen no street performing, except that these were snowbirds from Canada, and they'd seen us maybe at, at street festivals. Right. And uh, but these are mostly retired uh, uh, snowbirds, but that scene worked, and that I was pioneering a place where the weather was in the winter is quite conducive to to what we do, and I had the same thing happening over in Phoenix. I'm sure if I I, I worked in in uh, Albuquerque, if I kept working in Albuquerque, I'm sure I could have cracked open more spaces. You want to keep doing that. I have a standing invitation anytime I want. If I'm at University of Texas, El Paso, just throw my stuff out and go into the student union and perform. You know, um, makes me think about, because you mentioned Yuma, and yeah. their population, and, uh, and, and you know, all of us know about winter versus summer, and where right. we head off to. It used to be you, you go down to San Diego back when it was good. Uh, you could go down... Uh, to New Orleans for the winter or Key West. Um, but, uh, you know, there. I think it's interesting that Lawrence, Kansas, he's, uh, that's been running for a while. There's mm-hmm. the university. There's a certain size town. Uh, here we are in Longmont, Colorado, a great big college, university here. Uh, you got a great arts crowd, uh, a good population, and uh, I think it's an interesting, you know, maybe we just haven't figured out the right model. It's only for certain size cities, and we and and you've got to approach the whole city after you can show uh, that our our model works. Um, well, you know. and so like Cellini could do the, his show in anywhere, 
For those of you who don't know, uh, Jim Cellini was an incredible, uh, one of the pioneers almost of close-up magic, te- you know, where big crowd for, for doing yeah. cups and balls. And, Sleight of hand. Yeah, and he's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Gazzo owes him everything. Um, and <laughs> okay, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> yeah. So so tell us, um, just real keep lightening up the tone here, just yeah, as, yeah. as we're getting to the end here. Yeah. Um, you know, tell us a magical story, like one of the most magical, uh, you know, ridiculous, most ridiculous, magical or ridiculous thing that you've had happen, whether it was right. with the chicken right. or with the dog. So, so, um, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, uh, I get word that they've done a sweep in Fisherman's Wharf and arrested all the street performers. So usually that means that the, you're, you're put into the paddy wagon and you're taken downtown. They put you in the holding pen and after a number of hours, they just release you on your own, you know, and, and they drop all charges. But they basically want to kind of intimidate you and slow you down a little bit and warn you. So I go with uh, several of my friends who were not arrested. And we go down to what's called Keystone Corner, which is in North Beach, the, the precinct station to speak to the uh, chief of police of this precinct. And so this guy says to me, uh, the chief of police is, lets us in. And he goes, so uh, I'm driving through Fisherman's Wharf and I'm with my lieutenant and we see a musician and he's playing music and we all like music. I love music. You love music. The world loves music. But he's doing his music in the doorway of a business. That business pays taxes. The taxes they pay make the city run and part of it is for me to help him run his business. I cannot afford to let this man sit there and play music in front of the doorway. I go down the street a little bit further. There's a guy And he's doing mime. I like mime. I love clowns. I grew up loving clowns. But he's making a mockery of the visitors to our city. He's imitating them. He is mocking them. He is humiliating these people. And I will not stand for this. It's too much for me to bear. I tell my lieutenant, we are going to have to do something about this. I go down the street a little further. And there's this guy. And he's standing there on the street, juggling fire with a live chicken on his head. And I told my lieutenant, I want this whole thing shut down. Everybody is cleaned off. (laughs) (laughs) So he didn't recognize me. I didn't want to tell him that I I was like, you know. Somehow you go down there and he didn't recognize (laughs) you were the guy with the chicken on his head. The chicken on the head, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, I, I was uh, sitting in a truck stop, uh, like, um, and I'm eating at this counter, and these two truck drivers are talking to each other, and this guy's talking. They don't recognize me, and he goes, uh, so, um, Bob, I, I was in San Francisco in Fisherman's Wharf. Yeah, okay, yeah. He goes, can not believe what some guy's doing there to get attention? <laughs> so... <laughs> So I didn't say anything to them, but you know, there's a lot of stuff like that, you know. It, it, of course, if you chug a fire and you have a chicken on your head, it's it's not a bad way to get attention, but it's not a, the best, uh, most, uh, um, uh, it's not an express way to with girlfriends, okay? Let me put it this way. It's... <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, um, 
So you're about to go up to Edmonton. This I'm about year. to go to Edmonton, and you've heard. I guess Shelley has told you there's a couple of uh, other folks that you know from the past who are there this year. Or I don't know who's on in the lineup completely, <laughs> but I know there's a lot of young new oh, acts. Uh, uh, Pogo Fred, I know Pogo Fred. Pogo Fred, great, um, yes, um, great act. I don't have a, a, the roster in front of me, so I'm not going to be able to run the roster. But uh, I'm excited. Um, I met Shelley in 1989. We were doing a gig in Calgary when uh, Finkel brought her on as the uh, stage manager for uh, a show we did at Jack Singer Auditorium, uh, which um, uh, Dick had me direct. I've got, you know, um, uh, Chris, uh, uh, um, uh, oh, I haven't said his name in a long time, uh, but Dave Duncan and uh, and and uh, Rick Hilton and uh, and uh, Chris Rosati. That's it. Yeah, those guys were all uh, theater sports trained dudes. Yeah. And then there's uh, a Pavarotti's there, Waldo's there, the the incredible Vince Bruce is there, um, uh, Kubinek is there, Murph is there. Right. These are some. Great, <laughs> these were the great acts of this time period. And uh, yeah, we're we're in thirty below zero, trying to perform outside <laughs> <laughs> in the mall, which is an experiment. But we we did a show for the. Uh, the uh, the staff of the Winter Festival in Jack Singer Auditorium. So we had a you know a half an auditorium. Did you go to Japan back when? Yeah, I I followed uh, uh, David Aiken at uh, Expo ninety. Okay, yeah, that's amazing because there has been this migration to other cultures, and that's one of the great things with with our our community is that we have broken barriers in into other cultures, such as Japan and and now with uh, Dolphin Creative. Uh, and people doing the Andrew Elliott uh, and everybody going over to the Arab Emirates and mm-hmm. going over to the Middle East and street performing in malls that are air conditioned in the Middle East where most of your crowd have veils and headdresses and uh, it's a it's a phenomenal thing <laughs> to to think uh, because it, you know uh, that they're they're that we do open these these pathways. With our culture and, and and or not with our culture, but with uh, this live thing that's not on your TV only and MTV or whatever. Um, it's amazing to chat with you uh, uh, around all of this. Uh, uh, the fact that you've been there from the, the really the beginnings um, and uh, and and your new uh, another novel is coming or what's what's kind of on the horizon? Yeah, right yeah, now? yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just in the initial stages of developing an idea, so we'll see where that takes me. But maybe a, a piece about um, writing um, about a guy in Oakland uh, who's a lyricist, uh, songwriter. Fantastic. And uh, that's, that's, that hasn't got a plot yet, but if I can figure out a plot and put some sex in it, I may write it. That's it. Where's the sex? Um, <laughs> the sex is in the novels at great. 67 years of age. Thank you for <laughs> the stories and the history. Uh, it's great to speak with you on all of this. And um, thank you again to David Aiken for creating this platform um, and, and creating a container for us to tell uh, and, uh, the history of our crafts. And um, and thank you uh, to uh, Magic Brian for continuing to uh, keep this alive. Uh, we have to share our stories, uh, and, and may they all continue to uh, grow on Stories from the Pitch. Thank you, Dana Smith, for being here. 
hope you enjoyed Lee's conversation with Dana. Very special thanks goes out to Lee for making it happen. Now, before I tell you about sponsorship, where you can follow us, and about giving us a rating and a bunch of other important stuff, I want to give a shout-out to Martin Ewan and his book, Panto Damascus. It's his alphabetic journey performing around the world. I just finished reading it recently, and I highly recommend it. It's full of great stories, and Martin is a fantastic writer. If you don't know who Martin is, he's also one of the legends in our field, and he performs as a stilted clown called Lurk. Look him up. I've included links in the episode notes to where you can purchase that book and another he wrote called Vastly Immaterial, and that one's just about other performers. This podcast is a labor of love, but we do need sponsorship to keep it going, so if you'd like to become a sponsor of the podcast, contact me at magic at buskerhalloffame.com. You can also visit the Busker Hall of Fame website and throw a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Or become a sustaining supporter of this project at patreon.com forward slash buskerstories. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help grow this resource and generate more content. And thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping keep busking history alive. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you enjoy this podcast, please tell a friend about it and leave us a review. Like a nice review. We don't want a shitty review. We want a nice review. Like five stars, we loved it. You know, shitty review's not going to help us. Good reviews, we appreciate. If you'd like someone to be interviewed, or if you feel a certain voice has not been heard, please reach out to me and let me know. Honestly, we're doing our best to capture interviews and stories with as many performers as we possibly can, and there's only a handful of us doing it, so the more people we have out there that want uh, to talk to other performers and capture their stories, the better. So, on behalf of myself, Lee Ross, who recorded the interview, and the rest of the team of the Busker Hall of Fame, remember, if you can't laugh at yourself, find someone else and laugh at them. I'm Magic Brian, and thanks for listening. Bye-bye.